Welcome. Come on in. Pull up a stool. And let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. John, what's going on on your end of the bar? Well, I'm sitting down here with Wanda Morris, a fabulous award-winning crime writer, and also a Toastmaster for uh, Left Coast Crime, and um, which I'm going to get need some points for because um, I'm going to be Toastmastering next year, and I'm a little terrified. So, Wanda, you got to like figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to you if you take in tips. <laughs> So you are reading from your new book, What You Leave Behind, and um, I will leave you to it. I'm excited to hear. Great. Thanks, John. All right, I'll be reading from the prologue and then a portion of Chapter 1. The island was ours, and we roamed everywhere except for one place, Dunbar Creek. Some folks believed it was haunted, filled with mystical, unseen spirits. Other folks called Dunbar Creek the end of the world. It very well could have been, too, after what happened there. Way back in 1808, the government passed a law that declared there was to be no more ships transporting our African people to this country to turn them into slaves. But evil men with no hearts or souls continued to work in clandestine ways, even after the slave trade had been outlawed for years. Those mongrels on two legs anchored their boats on quiet creeks and rivers along the Georgia coast. Small ships that left lands and broke family bonds, it would take their cargo generations to knit back together. One blue-black night just before dawn peeked over the horizon, a small schooner called the York slinked along Dunbar Creek to unload a cargo of West Africans known as the Igbo people of Nigeria. The old folks told us how the Igbo rose up and took over that ship. They were dirty, tired, but still strong enough to drive their captors overboard. But other vile men waited for those brave souls when the boat hit the shore, men ready and waiting to get them to plantations across the south. After they were taken off the ship, they were shackled once more, chained together with freedom slipping from their grasp. The Igbo ancestors knew what lay ahead and decided in that moment what their future would be. They chose freedom. Together they walked into the water, shoulder to shoulder, their chains still intact. The farther they walked, the closer they came to freedom. When the final ripple of water erased the last trace of them, they were free. Some folks say the Igbo people drown themselves deliberately by walking into Dunbar Creek, but not me. I think those brave souls walked into the water and flew home. Imagine it. A person could be so disgusted with the thought of living in bondage that death seemed a better option. Like the Igbo people, perhaps there is a better option for me, and one day I'll fly home too. Chapter 1 Dead people don't talk to the living. It should have been like any other drive out to the island to hear her voice. 
simply get in the car and ride and ride until the tears blurred my vision, making it impossible for me to see and forcing me to pull over to the side of the road. On really bad days, I drive for over an hour, sometimes winding up in a different city or town. Street signs and landmarks shifting in the periphery as I went chasing after someone I couldn't see or touch. Once I drove all the way to Savannah from Daddy's house in Brunswick, but I never once went to the cemetery where she was buried, because to me, she wasn't in some dark hole in the ground. She was with me. I needed to believe that, or else I would die too. Depending on the day, sometimes I go to a park to sit and listen to the brief voicemail she'd left on my phone. I only had a few because it was rare that I didn't pick up a call from her. Even if I was in a meeting, I picked up her calls. Now I relied on the soft fragments of brain tissue that conjured up memories and the deep well of despair in my heart to connect me to the woman I cherished more than anyone else in the world, Elizabeth Wood. Libby to her family and friends, Ma to me. Her death had landed like a boxer's blow inside my chest, sweeping away my breath and bringing me to my knees. A year later, and I was still having a hard time navigating the indescribable grief because the person who usually helped me through any heartache I ever had was now the source of it. Shortly after she died, I'd swear I could still hear her voice, the cadence of it as she talked about some church gossip or giggled at some joke daddy had told her. It was silly, I know. Maybe it was some sort of grieving mechanism to get me through. When you're a grown woman and you lose a parent, people expect you to power through the grief. You have a job, responsibilities, you're an adult. You're supposed to know that death is a part of life. And if you looked at me on the outside, I was all that. But on the inside, I was a broken mess. And as if losing Ma wasn't enough, that imaginary boxer hit me with a one-two combo. Two months after Ma's death, Lance came home one night, quietly ate dinner with me, and then proceeded to tell me he was filing for divorce. He told me I wasn't the same since Ma's death. Who is after you lose someone you love? The truth of the matter is that Lance was exactly the same. Things I had stupidly tolerated before as a small ripple in our marriage, flirtatious interactions with restaurant wait staff, women we encountered in a store who were unusually comfortable with them, became a tsunami. The sudden appearance of receipts for jewelry I didn't own and dinners at restaurants I'd never been to became ground zero for the ugly destruction of a marriage that had been a fragile structure from the start. Much of what happened between us I still hadn't told anyone, including Daddy. Perhaps that's the way life is. You don't just deal with one bad thing at a time. Life throws a stream of adversities at you with no break in between. Ma used to call it a season. A job loss follows a death in the family. A cancer diagnosis comes right before a car accident. It's like a nonstop battle with the universe to see if you're strong enough to fight your way through the layers of misfortune and heartache. But Ma always said seasons pass. With no real home of my own and my life in tatters, I left Atlanta and moved back to the house I grew up in in Brunswick, Georgia. The prodigal daughter returned home with the divorce settlement and a set of emotional baggage heavy enough to kill a decent-sized bear under its weight. I needed what the old folks used to call a day clean, a new start, a fresh day. Wanda, that was beautiful. I was gripped from the beginning. I'm so excited to read this novel. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're exploring with it? Sure. So Dina Wood is an attorney, and you obviously just heard um, how her life has fallen apart. So she returns home 
to Brunswick, Georgia, which is uh, along the coastal islands of Georgia. And uh, she goes out driving one day and stumbles upon a widower uh, who lives in a trailer on some oceanfront property. Uh, when he goes missing, she goes in search of what happened to the guy. And what she uncovers is um, devastation among her community. Um, she uncovers a political scheme that takes away um, the land and property of poor and disenfranchised people. Under what is a really a legal um, concept, it's called heirs' property. And so people die without a will or some designation of what happens to their property after they die. The property becomes, uh, or a share of it, becomes inherited by everyone that they're related to. And all it takes is one person to sell their share, and then the land can be forced um, into a partition sale. And so a lot of really um, conniving real estate developers will go and break up families and force a, a partition sale. And that's how they get their hands on very expensive property. And so um, this book explores what that concept does to um, communities in rural areas. It happens in big cities, rural areas, um, all over. It happens to primarily black and brown, of course, and then in rural Appalachian. That sounds fascinating. I'm, I, I'm, I have marked my calendar right. It's in mid-June, June 18th, right? It's coming out. I to have that date right. <laughs> yeah, it comes out. Yeah, June 18th, and um, I'm really excited about this one. This one is really kind of personal, too. It, it deals with grief and loss, but also hope and resilience among the community. Um, and so I hope people will, will dip in and, and partake, because I think that there's um, not only kind of this whole exploration of what happens into communities, <laughs> these communities, um, but also there's a lot of humor in the book um, as well. Thank you, Wanda. Al, so who is hanging down um, at your end of the bar? Well, this, actually, this next guy, you know, we've been doing this, like this show's been on 12 years, and we do 200 shows a year, and I always like to keep independents coming on the show, you know, at least one or two a week. Uh, right through, and, and it's because of writers like this next guy, because every, you know, one or two of that year when you get the independents that actually write, that do an incredible job, they come out of nowhere and they just self-do it themselves. And he's also the winner of the 2023 Best Indie Book Award in Crime Thriller. So we're, I'm pleased to have him, Michael Balter, and he's going to be reading from Chasing Money. Hello, Michael. Hi, Al. Thank you for having me. Uh, to tell you a little bit about the book before I start to read, it's, um, it's a crime thriller, as you said. It's basically about two business partners who are with a uh, with a struggling startup, and they have a third partner, um, and they probably should have vetted this partner a little bit better. Um, and when they attend a pitch meeting, um, their partner gets murdered right in front of them, and um, that basically starts a desperate search for $10 million and a mysterious missing painting. Um, I will be reading from um, the first uh, opening pages of, uh, of the book. Chapter 1, Monday evening, the pitch meeting. There's a line in a country song that goes, chase after the dream, 
don't chase after the money. Well, I'm here to tell you that's wrong. Screw the dream, chase the money. Always chase the money. It's what Bo Bishop and I have been doing in one form or another for several years now. Raising capital, building runway, stocking angels, bootstrapping, are all the same thing. Convincing someone kind, generous, greedy, or stupid to fund your ambition to become rich. The trick here is not to find someone with money, but rather to find someone with throwaway money or someone who wants to make throwaway money, also called an angel investor. Raising capital is a trial for every entrepreneur. There are outliers who manage to bag investor money as if it were a pizza delivery because they have the genius, the credentials, or the connections to underwrite their venture. For most of us, however, it's an endless, soul-destroying process of begging the privilege to keep the doors open while the world works hard to keep them shut. That's how Bo and I came to be in a shabby little wood cabin about 20 miles west of Mount Hood, strapped to cheap chrome kitchen chairs, our hands taped behind our backs and our ankles taped to the chair legs. We were terrified and tractable. Nico, our silent partner and the reason for everything that happened, was there as well, one of the rare times he elected to join us on a potential investor pitch. His hands and feet were taped like bows and mine. The chairs sat side by side on top of a blue painter's tarp rolled out over the cabin's wood floor. It was a fishing cabin, purposely not fancy, with a slight smell of wet tent. A couple of antler mounts hung on paneled walls between a mounted shotgun and two old fishing rods crossed like swords. A faded U.S. flag was nailed to the stone fireplace. Much of the Sears catalog furniture had been moved about to make room for the tarp and the chairs. A bald, beefy guy with more fat than muscle stood over us. His fleshy, tattooed fingers fiddled with a large roll of black gorilla tape he'd used to strap us down. It must have been a tough job tying our hands and feet, because he was breathing heavily through his mouth and his face, a boxer's face with a nose that had seen more than its share of punishment, was shiny with sweat. Another big guy with more muscles than fat, dark oily hair and squinty eyes, and a stern face, stood a couple of feet back waving a Beretta 9mm like a baton. Not that I knew it was a Beretta 9mm. That came later. Jesus Christ, Nico cried for the third time after the fat guy finished taping him to the chair. In response to Nico, the guy holding the Beretta barked back in a thick Irish brogue, shut up, and then one more word and this baby goes off in the mouth it speaks. He shook the 9mm in case we didn't understand what this baby referenced. He took a giant step back as he spoke, moving past what I guessed he calculated was the periphery of any potential blood spatter. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Or the gun. We were in serious trouble and none of us knew why. This disconnect, the, the complete detachment of the why from the what, caused our panic. Tied to that chair, I fixated on breathing evenly and squeezing my bladder. Oddly, at that moment, the possibility of being shot by a stranger in a dingy cabin for an unknown reason carried a lower priority with me than the embarrassment of possibly pissing myself. We tumbled into the mess by driving to Rhododendron, a touristy village located halfway up Mount Hood. We'd been led to believe we would meet with an interested in venture capitalist from out of town. 
On our first and only phone call, the investor told me he was renting a cabin for the week and was looking to get some quick business done between trout fishing excursions. Bo and I figured he was a small fund manager looking for a way to write off the expense of a fly fishing trip to Oregon. He'd been cryptic on the phone, but that was not unusual for private equity guys who get tagged regularly by scroungers like us looking for money. The wood floor creaked as the fat guy shifted his weight and stretched out his right knee. Then, blessedly, the screen door behind us opened and slammed shut, breaking the silence with the same loud clap made by screen doors in cabins everywhere. Another guy, slim but sturdy, walked in and stood in front of us. He leaned slightly forward like he was battling a headwind. His appearance rattled me even further. His face was too immature for the rest of him. He looked like a teenager trying on his father's clothes. Black cashmere sports jacket, faded clean jeans, crisp white shirt, big watch, nice shoes. He looked exactly like someone we expected to meet, expected to pitch our investor deck to, but much younger, and we wouldn't be bound to chairs. He scanned us with dark, dead eyes and a chilling calm like he was examining a fast food menu. I couldn't look at him directly. His mannequin-like face oozed malice. So instead, I focused on the resolute Irishman with the Beretta, watching it swing ever so slightly. After a cruel minute of continuing the oppressive silence, the new guy took a deep breath and said, Thank you for coming. At which point, the Irishman dropped his hand, to his side, aiming the 9 millimeter at the floor. I thought I'd pass out. Excellent. Thank you. That was, that was incredible. Listen, uh, where do you get the details for these characters from? Is that, is, it sounds like you've lived through this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, was, um, I was an entrepreneur for about uh, 20 years. Uh, I was first a technologist, uh, and then uh, that was for my, the first half of my career. In the second half, I was an entrepreneur. Um, so I've raised capital, and uh, and a lot of the characters in the book are based on um, either people that I not people that I, I I've known or met or uh, heard about. Um, so I, I tend to base my characters on um, on real folks as much as possible. Ooh. Hopefully, they don't have your phone number. No, no just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I fictionalize them enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing you in, uh, you know, Seattle Shakedown for Left Coast Grind in April. I'm really looking forward, and I'm looking forward to meeting everybody on this podcast. Okay, Joe, what's going on down at your end? There's a big commotion going on. There is commotion because Leslie Carson and I are enjoying a delicious umbrella drink down here at, the, at our end of the bar. And because she's going to be reading from Molten Death, which is an Orchid Isle mystery coming out um in April of this year, and I've read the synopsis, and I'm really looking forward to hearing a part of this book. So take it over, Leslie. Well, thanks so much. Uh, it's great. Thank you for inviting me to read today with all these fabulous authors. It's terrific. So, yes, Molten Death is what I'm going to be reading from near the near the beginning of it. And um, I'll give you just a bit of a background, which is that Valerie is the protagonist, and Valerie and her wife, Kristen, are on the big island of Hawaii, where I live half-time, and uh, on vacation and they're staying with Kristen's surfer buddy, Isaac, who has agreed to take the two women out 
to hike out to see the uh, active lava flow. Isaac negotiated a series of boulders and pits along the roof and pulled up next to a dark-colored pickup truck. About 50 feet ahead, the road came to an abrupt end, having been engulfed by a thick ooze of hardened black rock. Valerie climbed out of Isaac's Subaru and knelt to tighten the laces of her hiking boots. Straightening back up, her eyes took in the night sky, across which an astonishing number of stars were splashed, far more than she ever saw back home. Oh my God, there's the Milky Way. Told you it was worth getting up early, Isaac said, shouldering his day pack. Hey, Leon, let's get moving. Pele awaits. Kristen switched on her flashlight and started forward. But don't try to rush, Isaac added with a look backwards. It could be tricky walking over the lava. Got it. Locating Kristen and Isaac with the beam of her flashlight, Valerie followed them out across the rock. Isaac was right. It took some getting used to crossing a lava field in the dark. Valerie was glad he was leading the way, as he was able to pick out the easiest path over the uneven terrain. She was also glad she'd followed his advice to wear blue jeans rather than shorts, since it became clear after only a few steps that it would be easy to take a tumble and slash your knee on the sharp, glassy rock. They'd been walking for less than ten minutes, Valerie, whose legs were considerably shorter than those of her two tall companions, consistently pulling up the rear, when Isaac called out, I see it! Catching up to the others, she turned off her flashlight and gazed out where Isaac was pointing. In the distance was a distinct red glow. As her eyes adjusted to the dark, Valerie realized there were numerous red patches, forming a line stretching all the way up the hill. How far away is it? she asked. Not too far. It's closer than it looks, Isaac said. Got a jam so we can get there before sunrise. As if on cue, a pink tinge emerged on the horizon, stealing into the sky and giving definition to a line of puffy tradewind clouds. They hurried on. Just a few minutes later, they crested a small rise, and there it was a shape-shifting mass of orange and red creeping inch by inch downhill. A couple of people were already at the flow, their silhouettes drifting in and out of view as the steam and the smoke from burning vegetation came between them. It looked alive, like some slithering beast come up from the depths to crawl slowly towards the sea. Orange fingers flowed from the main body at all angles, taking on new forms and hues as they made their way down the slope. A fine filigree of black floated on the surface of the lava, where the viscous fluid quickly cooled in the ocean air. But just underneath, you could see the fiery magma, its edges a searing yellow-white where the fingers stretched till they burst, spilling forth their contents of molten rock. Whoa! Valerie stood there unmoving, unable to take her eyes from the sight. Isaac, however, was busy rummaging through his pack. He pulled out three small bananas and offered them around. Uh, thanks! Valerie managed to stop gawking long enough to take one from him. It's a sort of a tradition, he said, as they peeled their fruit. I always eat a banana when I get to the flow, and then toss the skin out and watch it burn. It's not disrespectful, Valerie asked. I mean, I read that folks sometimes leave bottles of gin as offerings to Pele, but banana peels? Isaac took a last bite and hurled the yellow skin onto a pool of lava that had broken out from the main flow. Everyone can use a little more potassium in their diet, he replied, even if you're a goddess. Valerie and Kristen followed suit. Valerie expected the peels to sink, but instead they simply sat there, floating on top of the red-black flow. After a few minutes, they finally caught fire, and then were quickly gone. Well, I'm going to hit uphill a bit and get some shots back this way before that amazing backdrop disappears, Isaac said, peering down to check the settings on his Nikon camera in the dim light. Valerie turned around and saw what he meant. A crescent moon hung low in the now purple sky, with a single planet burning brightly above. She could just make out the thin line of the ocean, edged in the foreground by jagged black rock. 
Kristen pulled her phone from her pocket and tagged along after Isaac, but Valerie stayed put. She wanted to simply sit down and watch the show. It was mesmerizing, the way the lava beast spread its limbs in its non-stop march downhill, and how it continually morphed into crazy shapes, a heart breaking slowly in two, a woman's face with long streaming hair, a winged dragon. The flow came nearer, and she felt the force of its heat, as if the doors to a massive oven had opened wide. Standing back up to step back, she wandered down flow, watching a small finger dribble into a crevice and quickly fill it in. Tiny ferns had sprung up in a few of the cracks nearby, resilient little plants, doomed though they were. Looking out toward the sea, Valerie saw that the sun was now above the horizon. The low-lying clouds had turned orange and gray, and the sky was a pale blue. She faced back uphill, but could see no sign of Kristen or Isaac. Nice, to be alone, with only the sound of the wind and the crackle of rock being blanketed by the newest land on the planet. She continued on, skirting the edge of the flow. Now that the sun was up, she could tell that there were two different kinds of cooled lava rock. A twisty, ropey-looking kind, and a more pillowy, smooth variety. And she could see that while the older flows were a dull gray, the brand-new rock was a shiny black, sparkling in the sunlight. Her eye was caught by a color that didn't belong, a flash of fluorescent green at the very edge of the flow. Curious, she walked over and saw that it was a shoe. No, more like a workman's boot with bright green laces. Now how could someone leave their boots here, she wondered. You'd never be able to hike back over the lava field without your shoes on. And then she got that queasy feeling you experience when there's a disconnect between what you expect to see and what's actually there. For the shoe had not been left behind after all. It was still on a foot. But that was all that was visible because the rest of the body had been covered over by hot lava. That is uh, descriptive, enticing, a tasty morsel uh, for this book. Um, Can you tell that I'm a lava junkie? <laughs> you're a lot, which, which kind of leads to my question is there is a, a level of importance using Hawaii as the idea as your setting. So maybe you can give us, since the setting seems to be positively disappear. Uh, what was the level of importance for you for creating Hawaii as a setting for this book? Very important. I mean, I, uh, I have a previous series that's set in Santa Cruz, California, where I also live half-time. But I've been coming to, Cal, uh, to Hawaii, oh, since the early 1990s and um, have started living here about 16 years ago, half-time. And I just wanted to write, set a book in Hawaii for years. Uh, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, it was... Kind of a hard sell getting it published for a while because people, I had people say, oh, we already have a book set in the tropics, you know, kind of thing. But thank goodness Severn House, when I uh, pitched it to them, were very excited and said, absolutely, absolutely. So, yes, Hawaii is very, very dear to my heart. And in particular, I live on the big island where there are three active volcanoes. And um, one of the reasons that I ended up here is because I, the lava is, once you've seen a hot lava, it's, it's kind of addicting. <laughs> yeah, I went to Hawaii, wanted to see lava, and saw smoke. So that was a, it was a, a great time. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Uh, but I'm, if, if, you, if you heard that part, that piece, if you read the stuff, just like run out and get this book when it comes out in April of this year. Excellent. Thank you very much. This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com.